Mac Power Users, episode 594, A Third Alternative. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett and I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. Hey, David. How are you? I am excited. I love these. Fe- I know I say this every time, but I really like the feedback episodes because there's always a lot of little things going on that we can't give a whole show to. And this gives us a chance to clear the decks. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a bunch of fun stuff in here. Kind of a, a mix of things. You know, we're in this post WBDC time and that means things are changing with betas and what developers are doing. And then we're still in this Apple Silicon transition. There's, I feel like so much is changing around us right now. Yeah. And then like a lot of our listeners aren't going to be able to get their hands on some of this stuff till September. So we want to bring you content in this intervening months that'll help get you ready for that. And, but at the same time, we want to bring you good content after you have the stuff in your hands too. So we're, we're, we're coming up with some ideas. we got some good shows planned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And meanwhile, we still do have a lot of feedback coming in from listeners. And um, I got an email from Switcher Jack, and uh, he has come over to the Mac from the PC fairly recently. We used to get a lot more of those Switchers uh, emails, but I think it's uh, the Apple Silicon has started a whole new, like, wave of immigration, (laughs) you know? People are looking at what's going on with Windows, and they're like, ah, Apple's kind of got a good thing going over there with that long battery life and that Apple Silicon. So (laughs) Switcher Jack had two primary questions, which come up with every Switcher, and I thought it'd be a good time to check in on these and and see what you think about them as well. Uh, The first thing he wanted to know was what we do to defrag our Macs, and the second thing he wanted to know is what we're doing for virus software. So, Steve and I, have you defragged your Mac lately? Uh, No, never. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, never actually. So Mac OS is pretty good about taking care of its file system. And on modern Macs, you know, the last three or four years with APFS, the new file system, you really don't have to worry about that sort of thing. Yeah. In fact, it's a bad idea with an SSD <laughs> because you're actually shortening the life of your SSD for no reason. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So uh, there's really no reason to do it. There are probably utilities out there in the app store. They'll charge you eight bucks to do it. Don't, don't spend the money. Don't worry about it. The Mac really is self-sufficient when it comes to that sort of system maintenance stuff. Okay. So defrag, I asked you that one first, cause that was the easy question. What about virus software? Where are you these days? I don't run any antivirus on either of my Macs. On occasion, I will have a family member or somebody who runs into an issue with Adaware, which is basically an application. And you'll, the symptoms usually are like, oh, my homepage in my browser is like some weird search engine all of a sudden. Or, uh, you know, I go to Google and it, I see the Google page and then it redirects to something weird. Sometimes you run into that. And I like malware antibytes for dealing with that sort of thing. Uh, malware bytes, excuse me. And that's a great way to deal with it. There's also some other utilities. Uh, Clean My Mac X uh, also has some anti-malware uh, components to it. But I really don't worry about it. I don't run anything day to day just if it seems like I've got a problem. And really the only way you run into problems is, you know, like it's less of a big deal now since Flash is dead, but in the past, it was always, oh, I updated Flash and I just downloaded it from this like random website. It's like, well, 
You didn't actually download Flash. You downloaded something even worse. But most of the time, it's it's not a big deal. The caveat I give to this is, you know, if say that, uh, I don't know Jack's situation, but say that you're in a corporate environment and they require antivirus, fine. Like, it's not going to, it's not going to hurt anything. Uh, but if you're just an end user at home, I, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, I would follow almost all of that advice. The Malwarebytes app is a good one to run, and it's a good one to be aware of when you're visiting family, because I think most of the people listening to this show are smart enough to know that you don't just download random software because a website tells you to. But Mm -hmm. a lot of times, Aunt Sue or Uncle Joe will be on a website, and it says, hey, your computer's running slow. You need this to fix it. And that is bad news. And some of that stuff is targeted at the Mac platform. So, you know, that's a no if you mm-hmm. if you hit it yourself, but um, a lot of times malware bytes will take care of that. And I would also second that um, you know Clean My Mac does have some some nice tools built in, but yeah. I don't do it either. You know, I, I just don't run any of the virus software. Part of it is just you know I when I worked in a firm that ran PCs, we had this massive antivirus software thing where you had to update it every day, and it felt like it was a virus itself the way it installed itself on your computer Mm -hmm. and you know, there were performance problems and then I get why it's needed, but um, I have been, I've never really ran it on my Mac. I never felt the need to, and you know, maybe that'll change and you know, the usual caveats and whatever, you know, Yeah. but the, uh, neither one of us run virus software neither. And, and I would, I would actively discourage you from trying to defrag. Um, Yep. If you want to do maintenance, I think that's a thing because historically on PCs, maintenance is such a big deal. You really have to do it. I, I know it's not this bad now, but I remember when I have to use a PC, like at least once a year, you had to just really nuke and pave the whole thing to to get it running again because it was like it just got slow and you wouldn't mm-hmm. even know why, but it was software and you'd nuke and pave it and feel new again. I, I wonder how many people buy new PC computers when a nuke and pave would have fixed the problem for them. But it yeah, just, that's, a, that's a bad thought to, to think about. It just drags down, it's getting slow, then they buy a new one and it's it's got, a, you know, at least less, you know, that mm-hmm. stuff on it and it runs good for another year and then they need another one. Yeah. Um, what I would also say is that if you want to do maintenance, I am a fan of Clean My Mac that gang it's the same people make setup and um i forget the name of the software company um macpaw macpaw the i've met the people behind it at the various conferences over the years they seem very conscientious and their software has a very good reputation and they are always actively updating i think i just got a an email from them recently of all the work they're doing to make sure it works good with monterey so if you feel you you know you want something like that, I think you probably would want to head in that direction. I mean, they've yep. got the space saving, they've got some malware stuff, they've got some scripting, and and other things that they do. I mean, all of the stuff that you may able to be able to do with a little work, they do it for you and they do it cleanly. And you know, and I, I that's what I wrote back to Jim. You know, try this app. I think you know if you want to run maintenance, this would be the one to try. Mm-hmm. And don't go crazy and definitely don't defrag. Yeah. While we're talking about uh, maintenance apps, we had a question about screenshot utilities. Yeah. Um, the uh, I heard from listener Jeff 
an MPU subscriber, thanks Jeff, uh, who has not heard how we use uh, screenshots. Jeff recommends ScreenFloat, a better screenshot app, which is on the Mac App Store for nine bucks. And he says it's well done and useful for comparing images and even text. And the screenshot floats above any app. That's one of the nice features of some of these third-party apps is that, you know, usually you shoot a screenshot, then you can't find it um, mm-hmm. with ScreenFloat. I think that's why they call it Float. It, it puts it right on top. But I, I've never talked to you about this. How do you manage um, your screenshots? So for a long time, the Mac just did it the same way. It's like Shift-Command-3, Shift-Command-4. I'll put a, a support document in the in the show notes. But with Mojave, it got updated. And you actually can have like a little thumbnail. It's not as nice as what um, ScreenFloat seems to do. But you can get a thumbnail. You can decide where you want to save it. You know, do you want the mouse in it in it or not? Um, that sort of thing. But I just use the built-in tools. It's it's always been enough for me. And over the years, I've gone back and forth on whether I like having like the window shadow, you know, that Mac yeah. OS uh, Windows have. And for a long time, I did screenshots for like for like five twelve pixels without them. But they look kind of naked without them in a weird way. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I just I have found that for my needs at least the built-in stuff is is enough. But ScreenFloat does look uh, does look pretty cool. Yeah, again, I'm with you on this. I I have tried some of these apps in the past, but I just found that that was more trouble than they were worth for me. I I you know, and I use screenshots for the field guides and stuff like that. I don't really use it much in the in the day job as a lawyer, but. Uh, you can always find a, a use for it. Um, people may not know the built-in commands. It's Command Shift Three or Command Shift Four. With mm-hmm. Command Shift Three, you just grab the entire screen without having to like pick a window or anything. Like when I was watching the Apple keynote, and they would put up on the screen, they occasionally have a slide they put on the screen for like ten seconds. Yeah, um, where they show all of the additional features, and also we did all this, and there's like thirty things on it, and they leave it up. I mean, 10 seconds is generous, maybe five seconds. And man, command shift three every time, because Mm -hmm. you don't have time to like try and get the mouse over the window. Um, uh, But by far the most frequent screenshots I do is command shift four. And that allows you to, it gives you a crosshair so you can drag it and screenshot a specific section of the screen. Some people don't realize if you hit the space bar over a window, it'll automatically just select the window. So you don't have to like try and crosshair over the specific window. Right. Yeah. So if you if you're in that command shift four and you get the crosshair, just hit the space bar and then whatever window is under the cursor kind of picks up a highlight color. And that's the window that it will grab, even if it's behind something. So like right now, the Mac App Store is kind of hidden behind Safari, but I could just see the corner of it. And if I click it, then I get a screenshot of it, even though I couldn't see it. It was in the background. The screenshot utility that's just built into Mac OS was able to do it. Yeah, one problem with that can be modal dialogues will open up and like you screenshot the dialogue and you don't get the app, you know, so just be aware of that. Yeah, macOS is real, um, how do I say this nicely, uh, creative in, in the ways that <laughs> pop-up windows and menus get screenshotted and some applications they are on the same layer and some they're not. It's a, it's a bit of a mess. Yeah, but uh, Stephen talked also about the shadow. So whenever you screenshot by default, it puts a little drop shadow behind it, uh, which is okay unless you want to put that window over a non-white background and then it looks terrible. 
So in that case, there's a terminal command. I'll I'll see if I can track down a somebody must have posted this terminal command. Yep, but, I uh, did. Uh, uh, I, I, I got yeah. it in the notes. <laughs> yeah, so you can put a terminal command in that will remove the the, the drop shadow, and then like Steven said, you just get the the flat ones. The um, and then they've also got this new mode where you can get all of the you know you get these options available to you. Um, another thing about screenshotting is with this new mode is you can also tell it whether or not to float the screenshot after you shoot it or just save it immediately. And when you float it, it actually gives you the screenshot on screen and gives you the ability to like open it up in a third party app or do some preliminary edits to it. Um, do you have a preference there, Steven? I don't, I don't let it do the preview. Cause I just have it saved to my desktop. Cause generally if I'm making a screenshot is to send it to somebody like I'm answering an email to somebody or talking with somebody. Oh, hey, look at this, look at that. And if I do need to open it and edit it, then I can just double click on it in preview and say, you know, redact any personal information or something like that. So yeah. I just have it saved to the desktop as quickly as possible. Once again, great minds think alike. And that's, that is not the default behavior. So you'll want to turn that on. I, I feel like uh, I, one time I caught myself sitting there waiting for it to finish so I could get it in preview and do something to it. I'm like, what am I doing? You know, there's no mm-hmm. need for this floating thing. So, yeah. so I turned it off. GW wrote in about scanning document tech. Um, on 586, we talked about the uh, reference tools and uh, we touched on scanners just using Notes app to scan documents in the iPhone. And he said, you can also do that with the Files app on iPhone. And I totally knew that. I included it in the paperless field guide, and I didn't mention it on the show. So sorry, gang. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes just something slips through. But uh, if you if you go in the Files app on your iPhone, there is a a way you can um, hit the ellipses and then tap the scan button, and you can scan documents directly to the Files app, which makes a lot of sense. But I just totally forgot to say that. So thanks, GW, for catching me on that and. Anybody who wants to scan on their iPhone from the Files app, you can do that. Yeah, it was something that I knew as well. And just like we did that that episode, then I saw the feedback. And I was like, did we really not mention that? But uh, yeah, it's it's in files and it's cool because it, it can just save like right into files. You don't have to export it from notes or some third party application. Or just add junk to your notes, which is what you end up doing the way we recommend it. So yeah, nice. yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it's uh, it's a good piece of advice. Uh, Lauren wrote in about Launchpad. We, we've been talking a lot lately about, um, you know, Alfred and Spotlight. And and we got into the problem with Spotlight sometimes where it doesn't give you apps to launch. It wants to give you other data. And, uh, and Lauren said, hey, you know, Apple has this thing called Launchpad, you know. And with Launchpad, you can use a, a type to a keyboard space. And then you can type in any name. It'll just search only your apps and it gives you a way to launch from your apps. It, it very much feels like an iPad experience. I think that's that was from that phase Apple went through when they were trying to put iPad stuff on the Mac. And um, it's still around. I just don't use Launchpad. I mean, because Alfred does a really good job of getting apps instead of you know other data where Spotlight sometimes does not. It's just not a problem I have. But Launchpad is there. And I, you know, if that's the thing, in fact, I think it's a really good tool. Once again, for the aunt and uncle who aren't super sophisticated on their Macs to say any app is right under this one button and you can, and it, it ships as default on the dock on the left side. So it's really easy to get to it. And, um, 
And uh, we we have not given a launch pad much love in the history of Mac power users. Nah. So I, nah. so I wanted Lauren Lauren brought it up, and I wanted to raise it on the show. Yeah, uh, I would also say if Spotlight's not returning what you expect it to, then you can rebuild its index. It may be that the index is gone nutty, and so I'll have a, a link to that in the show notes. But yeah, there, there's a lot of great things. You know, it's one thing that's nice about the Mac is that it is so flexible, right? You could just go to your applications folder on your disk or Spotlight or Alfred or something or launch bar. Like there's a bunch of different ways to do things and you know, different people want to do things in those different ways. Even if Launchpad isn't for us, it is for somebody. Yeah. Um, we have talked a few times uh, with this whole Apple Silicon transition about, you know, what do you do with your old Mac? If you decide to update, do you sell it to Apple? Do you go to eBay? Uh, Dumman sent in his recommendation uh, that he's been selling through a company called Mac Me and Offer. Which <laughs> That's I, a very I, good name. I do like the name, I have <laughs> to admit. You know, it's it's a pretty good name. And and he said that they've been very uh, good. They have a higher resale value generally than Apple. They close quickly. They send you a label. And he says he, he feels like it's better rates than a lot of the other people that are out there trying to buy your Mac and um, a reputable company. I have not used them. I can't really endorse them, but I did send them in and ask them to give me a quote on my Mac mini just to see what they do. And it was, it was a better rate than I think Apple would give me. And they seem like a, a nice group of folks, I, but I haven't used them. But, you know, when Dumman is actually a listener that I personally know and, and he wouldn't steer us wrong. So if you're looking for like a third alternative, you know, something that'll give you more money than Apple, but you don't want to deal with the whole, you know, meet somebody in a dark alley thing from Craigslist, um, this might be one to look at. And, you know, they get points for the name, Mac Mean Offer. That's so good. I really like that name. Do you sell old gear? I mean, I don't think I've really talked to you about that. I mean, do you sell your Macs or I guess they go on a shelf for you into uh, the it de- it, museum? It depends. Uh, I, you know, my iMac Pro, I sold because that money was needed for the Mac Pro. Uh, same thing with my iPhones. I, I generally will, you know, either pass my iPhone down to a family member or maybe sell it to a friend who's looking for a phone or something like that. And then there are other times where, yeah, like something does just go onto the shelf or or maybe goes into like a secondary use. Like maybe it's going to be a machine that the betas are going to live on for a while. So for instance, my wife for a long time used a 2015 MacBook, the little one port 12 inch laptop that's no more. And that was my beta machine uh, for Mac OS builds. And then Monterey drops support for that MacBook, and so yeah, yeah, uh, I have it running on a on a uh, another notebook I had I had access to. But it, it just depends on what's going on. You know, this Mac Pro when it's retired, like it will, it's not gonna get sold or traded, right? Like it's special to me. But not everything is. Yeah, I see. I I aggressively sell the old hardware. I mean, I tried not to keep anything around. Like I just recently found out that my daughter had an iPad because we, um, I sold my, maybe this will come out later in the show, but I sold my 12.9 inch iPad pro and got her an iPad air. Cause she's doing something in school. She needed a new iPad. I didn't realize she had an old one that wasn't working in a drawer. And I just <laughs> put it in the Apple machine. They sent me 160 bucks for it. I mean, I, I would rather turn that into money. I'm not really hung up on keeping old gear around. So yeah. I'm, I'm aggressive about it. I, I do often just go to Apple because it's just no questions asked. And I don't have to think about it. But, you know, Mac, me and offer might have to get into the rotation here. And then one last thing I kind of wanted to talk about, I was wondering if I could rely on you for this. There's been a whole saga going on with bootable backups and Apple Silicon. Um, 
Are you up to date on this whole thing? I think so. So we're going to roll back the clock a, a little bit, but you know, starting a couple of years ago, a couple of releases ago, Mac OS itself started being on its own partition. So you had a yeah. partition on your disk or a, uh, I forget what they're called, a container is what APF, APFS calls them. You had a yeah. container for macOS, and then you had a container for your data. And then Apple came along and said, well, actually, uh, we're going to keep this, but now macOS is going to be read-only. You can't put things over there. It's just for the system. And just to back up just a little bit, it's like if you look in disk utility, you'll see like, Macintosh HD and Macintosh HD data and Macintosh HD is what holds the actual system and bad guys would historically get into the operating system ones and zeros of the, and they would make changes there. And then if you had a corrupt operating system, then you had big problems. So Mm -hmm. the idea is we're going to separate the operating system on its own segment on the drive, and we're going to make it read-only. So bad guys can't even write to it, which was a security thing, but it had consequences. Yeah. And so that's been going on in the OS, Intel and Apple Silicon. And then Apple Silicon comes along and says that Apple says, you know, these, <laughs> these are basically architected like an iPad or iPhone. And the way that works is that OS is locked away and you actually uh, boot from an image of it and you run into this issue where this signed system volume that you have is is really set for just that machine. And Apple doesn't really want you messing with it in any way. In fact, there's a there's a new feature coming in macOS Monterey which is like, a, you know, like if you have an iPhone or iPad and you go into settings and there's an erase all contents and settings and after a few minutes it reboots and it's like a new iPad, that's going to come to Apple Silicon Macs and Monterey because, again, they're architected in such a way that the OS and all of your data are all totally separate. So what's, what's coming is that... Uh, copying that signed volume and blessing it as bootable. So having a bootable backup, uh, that is, or seems to be uh, going away. And in theory, what it means is that Apple Silicon Macs can't boot if the internal storage fails because it won't boot from an external copy of the OS. And that's not fantastic in terms of having a, a backup disk on your desk. And if your internal drive explodes, you just hold the option key down and boot from it. Now, Apple will continue to support external booting on Apple Silicon Macs, but it's not going to be like a bootable backup. So things like Carbon Copy Cloner or Super Duper have to change uh, the way that they that they work. And And honestly, at this point, you know, Monterey's only been in beta like two weeks. It's not super clear exactly where Apple's going with this, but the consensus is from talking to a couple of these developers and reading Apple's like security white paper is that bootable backups on the Mac are uh, their their time is coming to an end. Probably, I don't know really how to feel about it. I understand the frustration. But I also appreciate the security. Yeah, and and the I mean, 
an internal SSD failure on a Mac is, I don't know how many times more rare than a spinning hard drive failure. I mean, they're worlds apart, right? And the idea of a bootable backup, say when your iMac had a spinning hard drive in it and you were, you know, running, I don't know, Sierra or Leopard or something, something older, if that hard drive failed, you could just boot up from your external and then get your hard drive replaced and come home and put your backup back on your machine. And Apple's been moving through this for a long time is that the Mac OS doesn't want to be copied around like that. And now it can't be copied around like that because it's this signed volume that you can't get into and only Apple has access to update it. And from your, from your comment, from a security perspective, that's fantastic. And even from a user not knowing what they're doing, why do I have a folder called library? Let me just delete it perspective. It's also good, but that means changes. And it, and it means like at this point, it seems that bootable backups are, are not long for the world. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Go to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps to get 20% off. 1Password is an excellent solution for your personal and family security, but it's also a great solution for your company security. I want to take a minute to talk about secret management because that's something 1Password has been focusing a lot of effort on lately. They've been doing surveys and studies of how companies store their secrets, and of course the answer is pretty terribly. I remember as an attorney one time walking out of a conference room and seeing the password for the opposing counsel's server written on a sticky note on a computer that was stuck to his secretary's computer. Just right there. Everybody that walked out of the room could see the password. I told him about it and he got mad at me. I don't know why. I mean, I didn't do it, but that's the problem with secrets. These companies have secrets. They don't store them safely. 1Password is a great application to store your secrets because not only does it hold your passwords and your logins for you, it also has secure notes where you can put secure data. I put medical data in there. I put my children's uh, social security numbers. I even put in password and detailed information for family members who I know are going to lose it and need me to give it to them. So uh, secrets is something that 1Password is very good at. But they're trying to get even better at this with this survey, and they're going to be adding features to the product. And and this is why I love 1Password, because these guys just never sleep. They're constantly thinking about your security, whether it be personal, family, or company, and ways to improve upon it. The bad guys are out there, and they're really working hard to get at your data. You need someone at your back, and you need someone like 1Password that doesn't sleep, that is always working for you. I feel very comfortable when I pay my annual subscription to 1Password, and you should too. So go check it out. Go to onepasswordcom slash MPU. Do that in all caps. You get 20% off. You let them know you came from the Mac Power users. Either way, get yourself secure with 1Password today. Thanks, 1Password, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. We did a show about our video workflows that triggered several emails that I thought were interesting and and were something we really didn't cover on that episode very well. First, we heard from Bud. Bud was a guest on show 100. I actually vividly remember talking to him at the time my mom was ill and I was taking care of her back at her house. And um, that show 100 really stands in my memory. But Bud is doing a lot of photography. At the time, he was using the connected data devices, which were even a sponsor for us for a while, but they went kind of up market. And then he's looking into Synology disk stations now. And he just wants a way, you know, to get something like a 15 terabyte photo library reliably backed up. And then kind of at the other end of the spectrum, we heard 
uh, from another listener. And I apologize. I didn't get your name when I copied it in and I went back and I couldn't find the email. So I'm very sorry, but a listener wrote in who said he was getting a, uh, or she, um, they has a 256 gigabyte, uh, MacBook pro and a 512 gigabyte SD iMac and starting to do 4k video, uh, video footage with a drone and trying to figure out how to manage storage with that. And kind of the big question uh, or theme of these emails was what happens when you start getting into media heavy storage, you know, what's a good strategy to manage that? Because, you know, buying a, a four terabyte SSD in your Mac is prohibitively expensive, but, you know, and it's also maybe still not enough storage if you're really dealing with 4k over the long haul. Yeah. 4k footage is huge, especially once you start cutting it up and you have backups and final cut and stuff. Yeah, and and I thought what I'd do to cover this, because both of us are doing different things. I mean, one thing Stephen did was buy a, a Mac Pro, which yeah. got internal storage, which I think, you know, buying a $10,000 computer isn't really in, this, in the cards for a lot of listeners either. No. But, no. but let's talk through what we're doing. And then I've also added to the outline a couple other options that neither one of us are doing that I think are worth kind of discussion. Here. Sure. So... To state the problem, uh, Stephen, more than me, is, is is shooting a lot of video. I'm shooting video of Disneyland, which, you know, is 4K, but not really um, mission critical. It's a, it's a hobby project. But both of us are suddenly collecting all this data. How are we managing it? You want to go first? Yeah. I, I do have a Mac Pro. It has a, a big internal SSD. It has a card in it with even more solid state storage. I have a lot of terabytes at my disposal, but that's like you said, prohibitively expensive for most people, including me, probably. Uh, sometimes I look at this machine, I'm like, that was a decision I made. But uh, <laughs> Especially as the Apple Silicon rolls out. Uh, um, <laughs> but, but wait, I just want, I don't want to skip over. Um, yeah. The SSDs are expensive from Apple. A yes. multi-terabyte SSD from Amazon, on the other hand, is Not. like a, a fraction of the cost. Oh, like yeah. 25% of the cost. Right. Right. Uh, so how I manage it is I'll import my footage. I'll edit my video. I'll export it, you know, as a 4K file, send it to YouTube, etc. But I don't actually keep the Final Cut project or the raw footage very often. For some projects, I will. If it's a project on something that I can't shoot again, like if someone sent me something for a project and I have to send it back to them, I'll keep all the, every raw piece of footage I have. Because I, I won't, you know, easily have a chance to shoot another, you know, whatever it is, stainless steel iPod shuffle, uh, for for instance. But if it's something that I have, and say, uh, so I'm just looking through my archive folder. So say, uh, you know, two years ago, I did a video on the white iPhone 4. Remember that? Like, Apple kept saying it was going to come out, come out, and then it finally did, like nine months later. Yeah. If something happens and I need to reference the white iPhone 4, well, I have it. And so I can just do some more shots of it and drop it into a future project. Obviously, very different when you have, uh, you know, effectively a library of your reference material in your office and you can just go pick up a laptop and shoot it. But but the way I do this is I don't deal with it, is that I, I get rid of those big files, you know, usually a couple of weeks or a month after the video's been up. Or if it's something that it would be difficult to replicate the raw footage, then I'll, then I'll keep it. But past that, you know, I, I don't keep everything I shoot. Yeah. I'm, I'm following a similar strategy. The, um, uh, on my, on my, you know, primary Mac, 
the there's limited space and the, the there's a couple things going on when you import when you when you put 4k files on your drive they are massive but then when you do a logic project logic uh, aggressively uses its caching feature to make the application faster and faster so as you add effects to your video it caches all that stuff in it doesn't wait till the moment you press render to do all this work and that those cache files are equally massive. In fact, I think those can get bigger than your data files because I don't think there's a limit to it. It will just keep going and grinding on it as long as you let it. Um, so if you're going to you know, get your drone shots of 4K and you're going to do something with Logic or even iMovie with it, um, what I recommend is you contain that data together in a folder. Like I put the Logic project and the data files and everything in one place once the logic project is rendered and I'm happy with it, I will put the the actual source files onto a backup drive. I have mm-hmm. an attached backup drive. It's a it's a it's a multi terabyte SSD. I named it by the way Dagobah because you know how Yoda had to go off to the far off you know swamp. Right. That's that's where I send my data. You know, and but I also have a um a rule in there with um with Hazel that will delete it after six months. And so I'm constantly like culling it out. Um, I have another place I can put things where there is no Hazel rule applied. If I want to keep it as far as this whole Disney project has gone, I haven't found anything that belongs in that folder yet. I mean, I figure if people want to watch these videos, they want to see the current Disneyland. They don't want to see the six months ago Disneyland. Right. Exactly. Um, So that's how I do it. And then I, then I nuke the, final cut project after I've yep. rendered it. I mean, because that those cache files are just killer yep. on your drive. And I think a lot of people don't realize that's even happening. So like they get into something like this and they're like, I don't get it. I'm moving my data off, but my drive is still full. Well, it's all in logic cache files. I mean, they're, they're bad uh, about that. To get back to the question a, a little bit, I think if you're running out of space to do the edit, right. To bring that stuff in, then you're looking at something like an external SSD. And somewhere in the email was, you know, do I look at USB-C? Do I look at Thunderbolt? I mean, having talked to people like our friend Austin, who has a YouTube channel, they they edit a lot off just little Samsung, you know, T5, T7 SSDs. And they're USB-C, and they're fast enough. I don't think you've got to go and get like a really pricey external Thunderbolt SSD because the prices go way up once you get into into Thunderbolt territory. But yes. you know, right now I'm looking at Amazon. There's a one terabyte T7 SSD and it's $159. Like it's amazing how far these prices have fallen. And honestly, I think that would be fast enough for almost almost anybody who's kind of doing stuff at our sort of like hobbyist prosumer level. Yeah, and if you've got a 256 gigabyte um, laptop, uh, that 150 bucks giving you an extra terabyte that you can plug in anytime you want is going to be probably all you need. Yeah. So long as you're not keeping all these files forever. And then for that, I would recommend maybe you do go to a spinning drive. Like I was in Costco recently and for like 120 bucks, they had a pair of two two terabyte spinning drives, you know, it was, they came, they came in a box with two of them. So you've got your like backup and you've got your backup of your backup mm-hmm. for 120 bucks. You get two terabytes, you know, and 
it's not something you're going to work from, but if you want to put like data files on there to have them for cold storage, I mean, that stuff is like ridiculously cheap and there's, there's sales on Amazon all the time on, on those types of drives. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where like the Synology comes in. Like if you need a lot of cold storage or storage that is not being actively used for video editing, uh, Synology can, can, can be that. And I haven't, I don't have firsthand experience, but from talking to people like in the forums and, you know, friends that people that we know, really editing video off of a, off of a NAS, like a Synology, which is like this box with a bunch of hard drives on your network connected over Ethernet is not really the way that Final Cut wants to work. And you may run into networking issues and other things. And so direct attach, I think, is always going to win for me. Yeah, a USB-C um, SSD is going to be like 100 times easier than doing it with a NAS over a network. I mean, yep. it's just not not good. Um, and, and I've really, you know, I, I had at one point a Drobo network share. Uh, this is like a long time ago. And it just never really felt like I used enough of the features of it to justify the noise and the hassle of trying to keep it going. So my backup these days is really reliant on like drives stuck to the bottom of my desk and and me manually copying onto, you know, a stationary or spinning drive that I keep in a drawer. So my system is kind of hacky, but uh, the fact is I've got lots of copies of everything everywhere. And when you're addressing the problem of not enough storage, a lot of time it's not the cold storage stuff you're looking for. It's the active storage. Like forget about YouTube. Just let's say you've got a big photos library and you don't want to do the thing with Apple where they keep all your photos in the cloud, but you don't actually have a hard copy of all of the photos downloaded. You know, I mean, a lot of people are in this situation, you know, like my kids are frankly in this situation. They've got 512 gigabyte MacBooks. They have large photo libraries, but they also have a bunch of schoolwork. So their photos are not entirely downloaded. And, um, you know, I think a smarter way would be to attach like one of these external SSDs and just locate your photo library on that. And it's how I had my wife's MacBook Air set up for years. Yeah. Uh, it was that exact setup, external SSD with her photo library on it. And, you know, the M1s came out, I got her a MacBook Air with enough storage for her photos. But yeah, yeah, this stuff has come down in price. And I mean, I was just thinking when you're talking about the box of two, two terabyte drives at Costco, like 15 or even maybe 10 years ago, that would have seemed unbelievable. It's remarkable yeah. to me how fast I it's know. moved. I know. I remember at work, um, this is a while back, but we had a 200 gigabyte like backup drive for all of our, like, I want to say word perfect files. I don't know, but the the drive <laughs> name was big Mo, you know, That's good. <laughs> and the, uh, and it was like 200 gigabytes. And now it's like, is that enough for my camera card? I'm not sure if it no, is, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, some other solutions, but, but it sounds, you know, I like you, I'm just not, I think the Synology is a great solution for a consumer product. If you want something like that, but I don't have a lot of experience with them. I'm not even sure I want the experience with them. I feel like that's kind of beyond what I need. The system I have is working okay. And if, if you're just dealing with a situation, you don't have enough drive space on your MacBook, buying a Synology doesn't feel like the right solution. Uh, another thing a lot of people do is they'll have like a Mac Mini, which are fairly cheap. You can put it in a closet and attach some of these, you know, Costco drives to it and suddenly have kind of like your own 
network server in your house. Um, we did a whole show on Mac mini, so we kind of covered that in detail. Do you have any Mac mini serving that purpose now in your house? I know that you have had that occasionally over the years. Yeah. When we did that episode, uh, episode 465, I was using one with a Drobo attached to it. And that was my file sharing, like for the whole house. Like that was my cold storage. I could just reach out across the network and get it. But since then, you know, the Mac Pros come along. So all my storage is internal to it. I still have a Mac Mini, though. Still lives under my television. Still has a super drive attached to it for the occasional DVD or uh, what it is now mostly is like ripping audiobooks and CDs for the kids. Uh, and yeah. it has the <sighs> Apple Music makes this complicated. It's not the like truth is in the cloud version of our music library, yeah. but it's like the ingest point for our music library as a family. Yeah. Yeah. And, but honestly, like, I feel like it gets used less and less. Like, in fact, I was on it the other day because um, one of our kids has an iPod Nano that they listen to audiobooks on. And I was seeing some files over to it. And it was running like Big Sur, like 11.2. So I just had it been on it. I was like, oh, you're two versions behind. Let's get you updated while I'm here. But uh, you could definitely do that. And it's a great use for an older Mac Mini or if you have the room and, you know, say you have an, an iMac that is coming out of rotation or something or a notebook, like having a Mac on the network doing stuff can be very useful if your files and needs, you know, work across the network. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do as we make these transitions. Like if this fancy MacBook Pro or Mac Mini comes out and I decide to to upgrade the old Mac Mini I have, I don't think I would turn it into a network when I think I would just turn it into cash, whether I sell it to, you know, one of these third parties or Apple. I just, I just don't want to deal with it, honestly. And one of the advantages of my kids getting older is they're kind of responsible for their own data now. And they're not watching, you know, the Barbie movies that they want to watch a thousand times anymore. So we don't have to deal with that whole like problem, you know, <laughs> I'm still in those days. I don't, yeah. I, you know, yeah, watched... when they're young, I mean, they'll watch movies over and over again. And, yeah. um, that's great, except I, I think I ta- talked about on the show once the Barbie DVD got peanut butter on it, and I was like, great. I wonder what that just did to my machine, you know? <laughs> <laughs> peanut butter is really good for DVD players, I think. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess, man. Yeah, and the Magic Drive loves them, too. It, it loves peanut butter. It just says, give me some jelly with that. Just stick right. some jelly right in that slot there. Right. I mean, a butter knife just slips right in there. Yeah. It certainly does. <laughs> you also have cloud storage, like things like Amazon S3 or Backblaze B2, yeah. Linode cloud objects, on and on. A lot of companies offer this. I think this is fine if you need like storage on the internet. But remember, these things are on the internet, right? Yeah. And you can set up your buckets or whatever, your servers to not only be accessible by you, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for the types of questions we've gotten, it's not really a great solution. I mean, I have an S3 bucket because the relay CMS, like that's where it stores things, <laughs> right? Like that's yeah. important. Yeah. But for personal use, uh, I don't really think it's a good fit for almost anyone. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a very niche solution. And don't confuse this with online backup. Like I think an online backup account is an excellent idea. I have one. Um, but, um, that's different from like treating it as like your online network. 
Right. Like a jump drive in the sky. You know, yeah. that's that's a different thing than, yeah, running back plays to have a backup. But yes, we absolutely you should be doing that. <laughs> this episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all in one platform to build your online presence and run your business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, they have everything you need to build a website. You get cutting-edge design and world-class engineering. Squarespace just makes it easier to establish your home online and to make your ideas a reality. You start with professionally designed templates and use drag-and-drop tools to make them your own. You can customize the look and feel, the settings, the products you have on sale, everything with just a few clicks. And of course, all Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile. Your content just automatically adjusts so it looks great on any and every device. You also get free unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There's nothing to patch, nothing to upgrade. You have 24-7 customer support just waiting to help you. You have a system to easily grab a unique domain name, and they have all the tools you need for SEO and email marketing as well. I can't say enough good things about Squarespace. It really is as easy to use as drag and drop. In a way, there's something very Mac-like about Squarespace. You just drop in a photo and it knows what size it should be and it knows how the layout should change. You don't have to worry about those details. You can focus on your content. Head on over to squarespace.com MPU for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name. That's squarespace.com slash MPU. And we decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Mac Power users. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the show. Ah, news, Stephen. We got some news. One of the very first apps we featured after you joined the show was day one. And we got some news about it just recently. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, day one has been purchased by Automatic. If that company name sounds familiar, it should. They are the company behind WordPress and they bought Tumblr a few years ago. And obviously there's a lot to consider with this, especially with an application that is so personal and has data in it that you may not ever want to share with anybody. And I understand people being worried about it, and you, and you should be, but I'd encourage you to read the two links I've put in the show notes. One is a blog post by Paul Main, who's the CEO and founder of Day One. Paul's a super solid guy. And then the, uh, the blog post by Matt Mullenweg, who is the, I think he's CEO, but he's, he's in charge of WordPress and in charge of Automatic. And he talks about how he came across it when his dad was sick and passed away and how much it's meant to him as a tool and how excited he is to have it as part of the, the WordPress family. And for me, like, you know, day one is saying the team is going to remain intact. We're going to keep working on it. A lot of companies say that when they're being acquired and that, that doesn't end up being true. And I hope they continue to be independent. But if someone had to buy day one, Automatic would be pretty high on my list, actually, as far as companies that seem to do good, responsible work with things that they acquire. Yeah, I've actually had some experiences with Automatic representing software companies that worked with them. And they have always been a very solid company, like just dealing with them. They seem like they're real straight up folks. And I think that is a, a good sign for it. And one of the things I love is day one implemented its own 
into an encryption model years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think anybody using day one has probably hopefully turned it on because it's just, you flip one switch and it's done and you don't really lose any features, but you've fully encrypted your data. So they can't even read your data if they wanted. And um, as I read all these press releases, none of that's going to change. So your data is safe. It's your data still. It's purchased by a, a reputable company, and um, it's hard being a small software developer. I guess that's another thing I can say, being a lawyer that represents a lot of small software developers. That's a tough business, and it's really hard to keep something like this going, um, where you know people don't want to spend more than a cup of coffee on an app that they're going to use all year. Um, so, right. You know, it's, I, I can see why this happened and I'm not particularly afraid of it. Yeah, I'm not either. You know, I'm not looking to export my data and like move on. It's still a very useful and important application to me. You know, I'll keep an eye on it like anybody else. And I think that's the responsible thing to do. But I don't think this is anywhere close to a, you know, run around with your hair on fire type. Yeah, type this is not a sky is falling situation in my opinion. Um, If you do want to get out of day one, they make it really easy. You can export your stuff as a PDF or a bunch of different formats. Everything is in Markdown. So if this is something, you know, if you don't want to be associated with a big company, I get it. Um, Just export your data. You know, there, there are other options out there or you can roll your own. Yeah. I mean, something that didn't exist really when day one came around was all these PKM applications that we've been talking a lot about. And a lot of those lend themselves to things like journaling. And so there's there's a ton of good options for this. Uh, in fact, in Matt's blog post, he was like, I used to run like a private WordPress like on my local machine to journal in. It's like, oh, yeah. we're way past that now. Yeah, exactly. And, and to be honest, uh, my day one usage has gone down because of my, um, you know, my deep dive into Obsidian because Obsidian as well has an end-to-end encryption model. So I feel safe journaling in it and because i've got a lot of projects and things in obsidian it's very easy to link them within so i get like my journal ties into the bigger kind of picture of my life it's not really a journaling solution that day one is it doesn't give you feed you prompts like day one can Uh, it doesn't manage like images the way day one can so i'm not really sure what the long-term play is i mean this is part of being me is i always like try experiments and um so right now i'm kind of experimenting using obsidian more than day one but i'm not sure that that's a permanent thing but you're right i mean if you wanted to do something in one of these uh, platforms you could um i i know i keep banging the security drum on this stuff but especially with your journal i would really insist that whatever you know solution you want has that end-to-end encryption meaning that your data is encrypted both in transit and at rest. A lot of these data platforms have just um, data encryption in transit, but then once it gets on their server, they can go read it if they want. And I don't think that's a very good, you know, solution for journal. You're still using day one day to day though, right? Oh yeah. Every, uh, yeah. almost every day I've got a daily log thing. Uh, I have a repeating task on Fridays. I look through the photos I've taken throughout the week and, you know, move ones that I want to keep into day one. So I'm still actively using it. Really, if anything, maybe more than when we did that episode in 2019. Yeah. Any new features that you're using that we haven't talked about? You know, I was thinking about that. They did, uh, they've done some stuff around different media types. And so you can have 
Uh, you can have audio and you can, I believe you can upload video now as well, but most of my entries are pictures and text. And so I, I think I'm using it mostly the same way. One thing I've done, because we talked about, I think we talked about on a feedback show, was different ways you can use different journals. And so I went from one big sort of mega journal to actually having four. And I've really liked having that sort of separation to different types of things. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that I'll probably ultimately be using a day one for my journaling stuff because it's just so good at that. Um, one feature they added that I really appreciated was they got much better with their automated prompts. Like, um, at the end of the day, I have like a little scorecard, like, did I do my best to be a dad, to be a husband, like that stuff. And you can build that into day one very simply, and it'll just send you a notification at the end of the day to, you know, fill out your daily scorecard. And I think that's, that's a really nice feature. I, I'm not intimidated at all by this purchase, though. I, I think it's fine. To me, I read it, and I'm like, oh, okay, who bought them? That was my first question. Like, mm-hmm. if it was, like, a company that is known for, you know, monetizing its users, I would probably be nervous. But since it's it's automatic, I'm like, oh, okay, we're fine. Agreed. You mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, but you've done some, some iPad rearranging. Tell me about yeah. that. I mean, I talked about it on the WWDC show, but I, I've been going through kind of like a, a reckoning with the iPad, and um, and uh, I actually wrote about it in my newsletter as well. By the way, hey, newsletter note. By the way, Max Sparky's newsletter now has no tracking pixel. Very cool. I've been I've been trying to get it turned off forever, but my the company I had wouldn't didn't even have the feature available. They're like, why on earth would you want to turn that off? You know, and I'm like, no, I just want it off. I don't care you know, who opens it or where I'm going to send it anyway. And, um, the, uh, they added a beta feature, uh, uh, shout out to ConvertKit. They added a beta feature and they sent me a note and said, Hey, I know you've been wanting this. And so I was one of the first and we're working on doing the same thing with the Mac power users newsletter. I'm just working with the vendor to figure out how do we do it. But, um, but we're out of the creepy business. So that's cool. But anyway, I sent out a note on my um, newsletter about this iPad conundrum. And I got a lot of people writing back saying, hey, you hate the iPad. No, I don't hate the iPad. I, I like it. And I I think iOS 15, the more I use it on the iPad, I understand what Apple did. But I also feel like for too long, Apple and me were on a different page with respect to the iPad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I was trying to use it exactly how I use a Mac. You know, I wanted to do very deep file stuff, tagging, all the heavy lifting stuff I do. And and understand when I do like a legal transaction, I'll go into a meeting with a room full of accountants and lawyers, and we're passing around 20 different spreadsheets and Word documents and things like that. And and I just could never get the iPad to do that for me in an effective way. And um so so now I'm trying to, and, and the, the uh, hallelujah moment for me was talking to my kids about it because they love their iPads and they use it kind of within the, the bounds of what an iPad is supposed to be. You know, they do a lot of stuff with the pen. They do a lot of research with it. They love the notes apps, you know, and um, I just kind of took a step back and looked the way I was using the iPad. Like I do that too. When I review contracts, I love the iPad for that. And when I'm doing basic communications, it's great. Um, I also like it for consumption, but like the real kind of heavy lifting Mac stuff I was trying to do, well, you know, I was just trying to turn a car into a truck and I just realized that why am I doing this? This is dumb. And, um, 
So I took a look at how I was using the iPad and the things I really like about it. And we have a 2018 11-inch iPad that had been kind of getting passed around in the house. And I had my 2018 12.9-inch uh, iPad Pro. Well, I, I sold that to Apple and got my daughter and uh, a new iPad Air because she's starting a graduate program and she needed a kind of a, a new one with a new battery in it. I took over the 2018 11-inch and I'm just using an 11-inch iPad now and I'm using it as an iPad. I'm not trying to make it a Mac. And uh, and me and this iPad are very happy together. It's not that I hate the iPad. I just I'm just not pushing it as hard as I have been. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It does. You know, I've spent a little time with the beta and while the multitasking stuff is better, I can't shake the feeling that it's just building on the same foundation that maybe needs to be <laughs> replaced. Well, or does it? I mean, I think maybe the problem is Apple has always seen this iPad as this type of device and they've never really seen it as a Mac replacement. And those of us that are projecting that onto it aren't on the same page with Apple. Yeah. I think that may be fair, but yeah, I just, it, it hasn't ever really moved for me in the space where the MacBook Air or Pro set. And so I get it. And at some point, you know, it's time to, I don't want to say move on from it, but you know, time to kind of realize it is what it is and there's other things to do. So I totally well, get it. And the other thing that happened in the interim is Apple released a Mac that has a 20 hour battery and never gets hot. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Who would have really, guessed the the Apple Silicon coming to the Mac would make the iPad look bad? But it does. Well, it it brings parity. You know, there were that was a feature that was only on the iPad before an Intel MacBook would last for you know maybe four hours. You know, and and you would feel it spin up and get warm on your lap. And these just don't do that. So suddenly, you know, some of the features that would draw you to an iPad are also on the Mac. So I don't know. I mean, I don't want to make a big deal out of this. I'm still definitely exploring iPad and and as to the Mac Power users listeners, don't worry. I'm working on iPad. I'm going to bring you iPad workflows and stuff still. And I'm still using it daily. I mean, but I'm just I'm just not going to fight it anymore, you know. And, and like I said, I'm, it's it's really kind of affecting what's my strategy is as, as more Apple Silicon comes out, you know, what's my rig going to be? And um, I'm not really sure yet. That's that's more we can speculate on later as we get more from Apple. But but I just, you know, I'm kind of changing my attitude towards the iPad. One nice thing about switching to an 11-inch iPad is I just forgot how nice it is to hold an 11-inch iPad. So I find myself using the pencil and dictation a lot more and a keyboard a lot less. And um, that really does feel pretty natural for the iPad. Yeah, the 12.9 is is big. Too big for me. It's, it's a lunch tray. No, mm-hmm. no question. But, um, and the iOS 15 improvements to dictation and killing that timer, it really makes the iPad a, a nice device to work on. But if you've got 15 spreadsheets and a bunch of people looking at you, that's still not the right device. It is beta season, right? So iOS 15, iPadOS 15, macOS Monterey, tvOS beta. <laughs> If you're living that life, uh, where are you on on what you've installed? You know, now that we're several weeks after Dub Dub. Oh man, you're not gonna you're not gonna approve. It's everywhere, <laughs> isn't it? Well, it's not on my my laptop. My laptop is a machine I do all my uh, my recording on, so I leave 
that one clean every year. But um, I have a Mac Mini, and that one is fully beta. It's not just an external drive. It's fully in with the Monterey beta. And I'm using that, you know, to produce the shortcuts for Mac field guide. So I'm, I'm beating the heck out of that thing. Uh, it's on my only iPad, this 2018 iPad pro. Um, it's on my carry phone and it's on my watch. So, (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, you're all in. You can blame Rosemary Orchard for my watch, even though she'll deny it. It's her fault. Oh yeah. I mean, I can understand that. (laughs) It's it's an interesting year, right? Because it feels like the changes other than iPad multitasking are all at the feature level, right? Yeah. It's new FaceTime stuff and shared with you and all that's great and exciting, but it's not like a fundamental OS shift almost anywhere. And yeah. and that that in one way means the beta is maybe less dangerous than some years, but yeah. also like when it comes to review these things in the fall, there's, I think, less to talk about. Yeah. No, I I like these kinds of years. I, I'm hoping that this reflects um, that overall stability has improved. I mean, we don't need a lot of new features on these devices, honestly. I think what we need is them to be more stable and work better. And and all of these these features are are good. And, and like we talked about in the WWDC show, I continue to marvel at the fact that almost every major new feature is across the entire spectrum of, of uh, platforms. I mean, this is something new for Apple and I love it. You know, focus mode. I am already completely sold on it. I, uh, like I said, it's not on my laptop where I do a lot of my work. I mean, the laptop is plugged into that big monitor most days and boy, I miss it, you know, but that's okay. At some point, you know, this, this machine will get there too. Um, but I, I'm really digging focus mode. Uh, we talked about it on WWDC show, so I don't know if there's a whole lot to add about it right now, but it works the same way, you know, just keep adding focus modes. And, and the more I use it, the more I want, there's a couple tweaks I'd like to it. Um, um, and the whole nature of this feature is about limiting access to you, but, there are focus modes that are are built around access. Like when you want to get into email mode, maybe you want to be able to let people through the wall. You know, the way this feature is built is it builds the wall first and then you break holes for the people you want to let through. It'd be nice if you could alternatively make it more like a, a blacklist where instead of a whitelist where you have everybody gets through and you just pick the people that don't for certain focuses. And, um, that's a little different. It's a different philosophy. And I think if I only could have one, the way they did it is the way I would want it. But mm-hmm. I would like to see a little bit more flexibility so we could even put these into more contexts of our lives, you know, cause I, I, I view it as a contextual computing, um, you know, feature. So oh, I, I would like to do even more with it. Um, also, uh, kind of switching over to the iPhone and iPad, I would really like the ability to choose home screens via automation because now that I've got it with the focus mode, like I say, I'm going to switch into Disney mode and then my home screen turns to the Disney home screen that has the battery icon, the weather icon, the Disneyland app and all that stuff. I would like to be able to do that without turning on a specific focus mode. I like to be able to set an automation to give me the home screen for health or Disney or, you know, communications. And, uh, and there really isn't a trigger for that yet. But um, that's the problem with me every year. So if you give me a couple features, I can think of ones I want to go along with it. 
Yeah, it's, that's how it goes. And, and and really, when Apple builds new features, or even, I think, in their first-party apps, a lot of the times they're willing to leave headroom. So, like, yeah, reminders is fine for a lot of people, but a lot of people also need something more. So there's things and Todoist and OmniFocus and, every, you know, the whole market there. But when yeah. it's like a first-party in the OS feature, that sort of mindset doesn't go as far, I don't think. Like, the... Yeah. Allow versus deny list. I mean, what if you have like 30 people you want to allow, right? Or or it's, you, you want to allow everybody yeah. except your parents, or, you know, whatever it is, right? Like there's lots yeah. of scenarios. It's like, just put b- both in, right? Have allow and deny, and maybe they'll get there. Maybe it'll be next year, but it's a tension, I feel, sometimes yeah. in Apple software that they want to reach the masses and they understand that that means other people will go elsewhere and that's fine. But when you bake it into the OS like this or like screen time before it, that means when people hit walls, there's like nowhere else to go. Yeah. And like, like another one, I put this one in my post at Max Barkey is I like contact groups. I mean, it's so obvious that if you had a contact group, like I, I could have a contact group for my nuclear family, my wife and my kids, because I let them through almost every focus. There are very few that they can't get through the wall on, but every time I have to go and individually pick every one of them, you know, or if I had, like, if I wanted to work on legal work and I wanted to let all of my clients be able to contact me while I'm in this focus, um, there's just no way to do that short of me going through and selecting each one individually, which is just makes me crazy. And then if I add, get a new client and I don't remember to add them, then they're not going to get through, you know? So whereas if I just added them to a contact group, they'd be automatically let through. Yeah. That would be a nice, a nice addition. Yeah. There, there's, there's ways to improve it, but I mean, the, the overall gist of this is I'm super happy that this exists and that it's on. I love that it works on all of my devices, except, you know, the ones I haven't upgraded yet. And, and I'm, you know, I'm just two thumbs up on focus mode. Um, getting ready for today's show. I spent an hour yesterday in Safari on the Mac with, um, uh, Monterey trying to figure out what I think of the, <laughs> just the Safari look of it. And also just this new tab system where it collects tabs for you. And I have to say, I think that the tech press is missing this one. Um, uh, I get that, you know, like as nerds, we look at it and it looks like a UI disaster. And like, there are some real problems. Like it, it adopts the background color of your, um, of the website you're on. But I, I navigate, I forget who it was. I was on somebody's website that was blue. And then because all of my extensions are blue, I couldn't see them. So, you know, there's obvious problems that need to be ironed out. And, but then I, my wife came over and said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm looking at this new thing with Safari and she really liked it. And she's like, wait, so I could put like all my, cause she does like this charity. She's like, I could put all the, you know, the charity tabs in a group and just open them anytime I wanted. And I'm like, yeah, but you could have done that already, you know? And, but she, to her, that was like a new feature. And the fact that it would go across all her devices. I mean, she was like really sold on it. I think the nerds don't realize how much the non-nerds out there need a feature like that. And they need it to be right in their face. I think this is going to be more popular than people realize. Yeah. I mean, I think tab tab group stuff could exist and you have a UI that doesn't move the location bar around depending on what tab you're in. Like they can split the features and the design, I think. And 
I, I think in some cases it, it does go too far. Now there's some options, at least on the Mac where you can turn off the UI coloring and, but the tabs moving around location bar moving around that I think, I think that is frustrating, but you're right about the um, tab group stuff. And like the, the, my initial impression on the phone was I liked having the address bar on the bottom and the ability to swipe with my thumb between open tabs. But as I use it more, I like it less. I'm just having a real problem getting adjusted to having the address bar at the bottom of this, of the page. And it floats on top of the web page. So it's like you're trying to press a button at the bottom. You can't reach it. It's there's some weird stuff going on with this. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's hard to tell what's beta one and yeah, it's what's going to stick around. And there's actually some CSS that web developers can use to make the floating location bar work better on their individual sites, which is really weird. Like, yes, do some CSS and it will change how your browser looks. That's just very odd to me. And coming from a world where the browser is one thing and the content of the browser is sort of separate philosophically, but we'll see where it goes. I'm very interested in if Apple makes serious changes or not. I don't think they'll make serious changes. There may be some, but I don't think it's going to go back to the old UI. No, me either. I'm also curious what it means for the UI of other applications in the future. So in the past, when iTunes was around and relevant, Apple would experiment with UI elements in iTunes. And sometimes they would make it to other apps and sometimes they wouldn't. I kind of think that this Safari 15, like whatever ends up being, like the controller at the bottom of the screen is awesome when you have a big phone. Like, why is that just in Safari? Why can't that be in other places? So maybe we'll see some of these ideas, you know, pollinate across iOS and iPadOS in the future. Part of me hopes that's true, if anything, so it feels more fluid going from Safari to mail where they like work and look in drastically different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I, I guess my thoughts are kind of still out. As we record this, we're still on beta one. We're expecting beta two any day. It's early in the process, but um, looking at it, I think that there are going to be, I don't think it's the the end of the world that some people are predicting with the changes to Safari, but it is a big change at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, our extensions should not be the same color as the background. I think that's no. a pretty simple problem. You know? No, in their session about the designing for Safari 15, there was language about, if your website wants to set the background color as the same color as one of the window controls, like the red, yellow, green stoplight controls, we won't allow that. It's like, well, then you should also account for those other things. Again, it's early, and I expect that sort of thing to be cleaned up. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think it's I think a lot of the obvious problems are going to go away, but the, the more philosophical issues of, like, the address bar does move. I mean, the, the active address bar. Um, you know, you're used to seeing it in the dead center at the top of your browser, and now it may be to the right or it may be to the left. And I think um, I'm just curious to see when that gets in the wild, how, you know, typical users are going to react to that. Are they going to get confused? Do people like that even care? You know, are these the people who Google for Google? You know, I don't know. But that's different. And, um, Tab groups, I think, though, are more of a win than we realize. And um, maybe too. that'll offset it. Yeah. I mean, how many people knew that you could 
right click on the on a folder full of bookmarks and open all at once. No one. The answer yeah. is no one did. So yeah, I do think tab groups will have better pickup. Another thing is like I rely the way I use a browser. Safari is my primary browser. Is I use a favorites bar, so you can just in your uh, I believe it's uh, view settings. I gotta go to look, but um, uh, under view, yeah, show favorites bar, and so my favorites are a set of bookmarks that are key to me. You know, it's like the Max Barkey, the Learn Max Barkey website, the legal thing. You know, the Airtable for the current field guide, the thing where we capture bookmarks for the show all that just gets splayed across underneath like at the very top of my browser and i can click on any one of those at any time i don't have to go like digging for it right and that works that works fine in you know in the new in monterey it it, it shows that up so even though some of the other stuff is a little wonky the things i need to get my work done are still there so it hasn't i i haven't felt like it was the dumpster fire i've heard some people describe it but um, it's also very different and I'm just super curious to see how this plays out. But, but like you, I don't think they're changing it. No, I think they're going to tidy up what they've got. Yeah. Dictation continues to impress me. I'm like, that's the thing. Like I was on my laptop and I hit dictation and the timer t- tricked in and stopped. And I just wanted to throw my laptop through a window. Now that <laughs> I've got the ability to not have that timer when yeah. it shows up, it, it just enrages me. So yeah, it's a that. cool uh, cool feature in Monterey. Coming to Apple Silicon Max, it's one of those that isn't coming yeah. to Intel, but that is what it is. You know, I can't get upset about that. It's not just Silicon Max; it's iPhone and iPad too. It's everywhere, so yeah. it's like it's great. Um, shortcuts for the Mac is still very um, it's there, but it's not in a condition to really use it much yet. Like I'm doing window management stuff with it and some basics, but um, I'm hearing from lots of app developers that are jumping on board. I think we're going to see automation tools from a lot of Mac apps that we wouldn't have otherwise if shortcuts for the Mac didn't exist. And we're looking forward to having some real cool automation options available to everybody real soon. Yeah, I've seen some of that too. And I think it's going to be right out of the gate way stronger than Automator ever was on its on its best day. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Discourse, modern forum software for your community. Use coupon code RELAY2021 to get 50% off your first two months. Discourse was founded in 2013 by Jeff Atwood from Stack Overflow, Robin Ward, and Sam Saffron. It's a powerful, flexible, open-source community platform where discussions are searchable so you can find all of the relevant details for your project. The platform is designed with moderation in mind, helping you keep the discussion on track and high value while minimizing the impact of trolls and spam. And it integrates with Zapier, Patreon, Memberful, and more. You may recall a few years ago, I was unhappy with the Mac Power Users forums being on Facebook. Well, we set up a discourse forum and we've been so happy with it ever since. There's actually more people on discourse. It runs real smoothly and it's a great community. Administration of the forum is easy and the forum looks beautiful. We are so happy with our move to Discourse. Discourse offers a 100% 14-day free trial, and after that, plans start at $100 per month. And the folks at Discourse are giving Mac Power Users listeners 50% off your first two months after you start your subscription. Just go to Discourse.org and use the coupon code RELAY2021, that's one word, no space, 
when signing up. That's discourse.org and code R-E-L-A-Y-2021 when signing up for 50% off your first two months. And I also want to mention their new offering, Discourse for Teams. It's perfect for smaller teams or businesses looking to use Discourse to collaborate because it's a private-focused Discourse instance with added features, including a new sidebar, automatic icebreakers, team updates, and more to help teams work together more effectively. There isn't currently an offer code for the Teams offering, but plans start at just $20 a month. And if you want to learn more about that, you can go to teams.discourse.com. Steve and I are so happy to have the Mac Power Users forums on Discourse, and we're equally pleased to have them as a sponsor. Go check it out. Our thanks to Discourse for their support of the Mac Power Users and Relay FM. Okay, so is everything just uh, sunshine and daisies at this point? With the beta? I'm going to jinx it. But I feel like for a developer beta one, it's pretty good. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was one of those people. Like, I was a young man when iOS 7 came out. And I thought, I should put it on my carry phone before I leave San Francisco. And yeah. I watched the battery percentage drop on my phone 1% a minute. It's like, okay, that's not great. Um, I think part of it goes to what we were saying, that it's just less of an under under the hood, more of a feature level type thing. And some of those features aren't there yet. Like the, at least in Dev Beta 1, the universal control deal where you take your mouse off your Mac and put it on your iPad, that's not there yet. Some of the FaceTime stuff obviously requires people to also be on the beta, and some of that's not there yet in third-party apps. So it's early, but it feels pretty stable. Now, the normal things, we could talk about this, the normal things that you run into are there. But, you know, my iPad hasn't crashed into an uh, endlessly rebooting loop, so that's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, whenever you update your Mac, you know that there's a couple things that will break. In my head, first of all, is mail plugins. All my Apple mail plugins stop working every year. And like I go through three months with no mail plugins because you just they just don't work. And this year that's going to be more pronounced because they've added this mail kit extension program, which I think in the long run is going to be great. And in the short run is going to be hard because um, all the, the people like I really like mail tags, but, you know, I'm not going to have any mail tags for three months on any device that's um, on array. And at least three months, you know, because the developer has to re-engineer around this new mail extension thing, uh, right. mail kit extension program. But I think once they do that, then probably future updates will be much easier and more secure. So there, there's a win and a loss there. But I, I know that when I hit the update beta button that, you know, I lose uh, mail plugins. Another one I always know I, I lose, and we just had on the show recently, Paul Cafasis, is, you know, anything from Rogue Amiga, Amiibo, because they do the um, audio, you know, they, they go deep into the audio system to get the hooks to do their thing, and those always just stop working. I mean, that's one of the primary reasons I'll never install it on the, the machine that I do my podcasting on. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, my Mac Pro will get it probably around Christmas. I think that's what I did with Big Sur. I waited to the holidays. Yeah. I had the world, but otherwise things have just generally worked. My apps have worked. I'm getting a few crashes. Like I'm getting some crashes with a timer app, which is a relatively new Mac app, but um, you know, it is a catalyst app. It has its history on the iPad. And, um, and I talked to a developer and he's getting things cleaned up and they're like any app that, you know, has shortcut hooks. Those aren't going to work. Cause they're not really, even though they may show up in shortcuts, they're not 
fully, you know, the pipes aren't connected yet. The, uh, the strangest thing I've seen is Daisy and I went to California adventure and we had a little adventure and I ripped, I, you know, um, edited the video and then I hit the export button and it came out green. I don't know how else to put it. Like, it, did I send you an image of this? I think no. I sent you a pic. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Uh, uh, I mean, literally, I don't know if I still have it. It might be my trash can, but it it literally. Oh yeah, here I'm going to send this to you right now. In fact, I'll, we can put it in the show notes so people can see. It. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's like you're in a green haze. I don't, I don't know what's going on. And this was literally the first video I shot with this new camera that you told me to buy. And I'm like, that hack it. I spend <laughs> $900 on this thing and it only shoots the color green. What's the right. heck? You know? And then like, and I'm like looking at all my settings and final cut, nothing is showing up wrong. And I'm like, Oh, wait a second. I'm doing this on my Monterey machine. And then I went over and did the edit on my, uh, on my laptop and it came out fine and it went up just fine. But the, uh, I, I have no idea what that's about. You know, I kind of figured final cut would just work because you know, it's the same developers the operating system but obviously there's something going on there they got to fix yeah (laughs) (laughs) i agree (laughs) i mean i've never seen anything like this but it's incredible i mean because it's like it's just it is just the green layer wow yeah i I guess i should have posted it just to you know maybe i would have got more hits (laughs) (laughs) this guy really messed up his export Uh, he really doesn't know what he's doing yeah. yeah You know, I've seen some of the normal stuff where, you know, standby time is not fantastic on my iPad, but beta stuff, you know, battery performance, that, that's to be expected early yeah. on. I'm not surprised by any of that. I'm not even really worried about any of that. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, betas are the murderers of batteries. They, everything dies faster when you put it in a beta. I'm noticing that with my Apple watch more because my Apple watch is already kind of starting to show battery life problems. I use it every day and it's over two years old now. So the, um, uh, and I do work, I've been doing a lot more workouts. I've been trying to like get more fit. And, um, so I've just got to charge the battery in the middle of the day on my watch, you know, not the end of the world. I, I, I actually think overall it's been, a pretty good beta so far in terms of like not blowing things up except for my green video. Um, and like you said, you know, they just, I don't think they went really deep into the the guts of the system. So uh, that gives you a better beta, um, more stable beta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly what's going on. Yeah. And, and we're very early in the process. I mean, as we record this, we're still in June. I mean, this is, going to go through september i'm sure there's going to be changes but i think the die is kind of cast in terms of what direction they're going with these features i don't i don't see any of them getting pulled out i think they're all far enough along that they're probably going to ship yeah i think so i mean the last couple years there have been things that fall behind or fall out but this is seems like a less hectic year in terms of what they've included in the os's and so i think the bulk of this is what we'll see in the fall, just, you know, with more polish applied to it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. What about you? I mean, I've been talking a lot, What what are you getting a kick out of on the beta and, and what are you, what are you not liking about it? Yeah. I really like widgets on the iPad. You know, they, they didn't come with the iPhone and we had to wait a year. Uh, but one thing they did was they added a new like jumbo size 
And yeah. I love it. I love like I've turned basically I went from one home screen to two on my iPad and the top half is like just data, like calendar, weather, photo, you know, the photo widget. And I really, I really like, really like the widgets on the iPad. Now on the iPad mini, uh, they're hilarious because the iPad mini screen feeling pretty small with when you want to put a bunch of widgets on it, but I like widgets on the iPad a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I am enjoying is the fact that Mac OS Monterey, other than the normal things you would expect, seems like it pretty much stays the course of Big Sur, at least in terms of how things work and look. I'm not saying there, there are things that shouldn't be improved in Mac OS. I think that there are. I think like things like the Control Center and Notification Center need some more attention. But it's kind of nice after so many changes with the Mac with 32-bit software going away and things like dark mode and APFS and the UI yeah. change in Big Sur. I kind of glad that it's a little bit quieter on the Mac this year. And so like using Monterey, it's kind of hard to remember I'm using Monterey unless I reach for something that's broken. And so yeah, yeah, there's something to be said for that, right? Um, you know, and Apple's clearly on the Mac, they're focusing on ecosystem features and hardware right now and i think that's perfectly fine yeah no i i think they nailed it yeah i do too i'm very impressed what they were able to do in a year where everyone was working from home yeah i mean and that that's something that we forget to mention right i mean you know it 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 is like building a a feature film you know and i know that's happened as well during the pandemic but it's not easy to get all these moving parts working together and I think they, uh, I think they did a good job with it. We neither one of us had talked anything about all the FaceTime improvements because honestly, it's not far enough along to really test those out. Yeah. But I, I've been conscious of it as I've been using Zoom because I use Zoom most days, as a lot of people do these days. And I think that FaceTime is going to be good for family stuff, but I think for work stuff, it's going to be hard. Yeah, you know, we'll have to see it. You know, but mm-hmm. you know, there, there are there's still some features in Zoom that don't exist in FaceTime even with these updates. Yeah, it's it's not as full featured, but if they can take much more of the home personal use and then Zoom is kind of the professional end of things, like I think Apple would be fine with that. I don't think they're actually trying to knock Zoom off their pedestal. Yeah. But I think they just want to be for people who are used to like, you know, the the few headlining features in Zoom and they want those in FaceTime now. Well, now they're there. So I think it makes sense to put Apple where FaceTime is is now with these with these updates. I'm very curious how the SharePlay thing actually ends up. Like my guess is that it's not going to go anywhere real big. Like maybe some people will watch Apple TV Plus together, but I don't think that's going to really change the world, you know, sharing media over FaceTime. Yeah. But I don't know. Like you said, it's too early and not a lot of people are running it and not a lot of software supports it yet. So it's kind of a, uh, Kind of hard to tell which way the wind's blowing. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Let me tell you about another show on Relay FM, David. That is Top Four. It's hosted by our friends Tiff and Marco Armit, who can make a top four list out of anything. This show will make you laugh. It will make you furious. It will make you feel nauseous. It's it's all over the place, but it is so much fun. So indulge in the randomness. 
can check it out at relay.fm slash top four or search for top four. That's T-O-P-F-O-U-R, wherever you get your podcast. Well, I think that does it for our feedback episode. Yeah. Yeah. We appreciate your feedback. Please keep it coming. Uh, you know, we'll be sitting at the desk again in another two or three months to do feedback and love to hear what you think. You can also do feedback over at the forums. That's at talk.macpowerusers.com. We love hearing from you there. Mm-hmm. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. Our sponsors today are the wonderful 1Password, Squarespace, and Discourse. And uh, we'll see you next time.